Good morning, Thrive Church. How are we this morning? Good, man. It's good to have you guys uh, with us today as we are finishing our series, All I Want for Christmas. And many of us can think of Christmas past where we had memories with smaller children maybe. You had, your children are older now. We have uh, magical memories of the kids opening gifts and the, you know, the smell of the hot chocolate that morning and everything. But this morning what I want to talk to you about is not just the magical memories, but I want to tell you about the elephant in the room. And what that elephant in the room is, it's this right here. It's the empty chair. What we're going to experience during Christmas is not just fun and great food, but many of us, this will be a very tough season for us. You would probably hear a message like this spoken maybe at a funeral or memorial service where we talk about, you know, the afterlife or talk about, you know, eternal life and all those things. But I want today to help you to navigate the empty chair during the season that you're going through. Because every one of us have a loved one that we've lost, someone that's not going to be with us this year. And with this season comes pain. It's supposed to be the most joyous time of the year, but statistics show us that sometimes people face more depression during Christmas than any other time of the year. And I think if we had a Christmas list that we could write down and say, these are the things that I want. We've talked about all I want for Christmas is Christ. The last week was all I want for Christmas is peace. But I think deep down inside, if you're like me, you would say, all I want for Christmas is just some more time with my loved ones. I would love to have that spouse, that father, that mother, that brother, sister, child. I'd love to have them back. And unfortunately, we can't have that. But I think what you're going to hear today and what we're going to look at in Scripture today is going to help you understand how do you have a gospel grief during this season and how do you actually leverage the true power of what we call Advent, which is the coming of Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. John eleven seventeen, And John's gospel is unique. John's gospel was one where he was the last gospel written. John was an older man at this point. Uh, he had been to the island of Patmos, and his eyes had been, you know, gouged out, and he had been through extreme torture. And so most scholars believe when John uh, wrote, the, or when this letter was written, it wasn't John actually writing the letter, but he was dictating it. And so the other Gospels have been written, and I personally think that John was like, oh, yeah, I, I've read Matthews and Marks and Luke's. I was there, but there are some things they just didn't put in there. I want you to remember. And so as we look at this Gospel, just imagine John is an older man. He has a scribe there, and he's dictating to the scribe. And he's saying, man, scribe, you won't believe this. Like, like we all know Jesus as the healer, right? You've, you've, you've seen all these signs that he's done and these miracles, but this is the weirdest one yet. And here's why it was weird, because you imagine John telling them this, saying this, saying, you know, Lazarus was Jesus' best friend. They just had this connection. Jesus cared for him and Mary and Martha. And he, we heard that Lazarus was sick. And we just all assumed that Jesus would drop everything to go heal his best friend because he's the healer. We've seen him do it. But you wouldn't believe what happened. Jesus actually intentionally delayed and wouldn't let us go. And we thought, is he mad at Lazarus? <laughs> I mean, did Lazarus give him a bad Christmas present? What's going on here? Why would, he, why would he delay? Could you imagine the, the disciples being perplexed to the point they get the news that Lazarus has died? And now they're going. It's been four days. And John's thinking, man, I was telling Peter, I guess we're going for memorial service. 
And that's not what happened. I want you to look at John eleven seventeen as we jump in here, as John was sharing the story of what he experienced. He says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave four days. That's super important that John writes that down there. Because Jews believed in their history and their tradition, a little bit of myth and legend, there's nothing scriptural about this, is that after four days, the soul left the body and it went to heaven. There was no chance of anybody rising from the dead after four days. And so they're awake. You know, sometimes we have a wake and you go and it's like, you know, a couple of hours. It was like four days that they're just sitting around waiting that, that maybe he'll be okay. Jesus waited till there was no hope at all. Till the little traditions and history and all that was gone. Then it says this, Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. And look at their, their, their interaction here. Uh, it says here, uh, but Mary stayed in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Martha is upset at Jesus. Because she had seen and heard of the healing power that Jesus had. And just like you and me, we're wondering, why didn't you intervene when you had the chance, God? Some of you are scared to actually verbalize that to God. God's okay with that. Because what Martha does in her grief, and we're going to look at that, how they all respond differently to grief. What Martha does in her grief is okay. She kind of rips into Jesus. Like, Jesus, if you just would have been here, you could have done something about this. Why didn't you intervene? And so she's upset and she's angry, but look what she says next. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She's not referring that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's not, what, that's not on her radar, and you'll see later. She's just saying this. She's like, I'm angry at you. You could have, you could have prevented this, but I still know that you're God's son, that you have the power to heal. Like, it's like kind of how we are with God sometimes, right? Like, why did you allow this, God? If you're all-powerful, why? I still believe, Lord. I still want to serve you, but I still have these lingering questions. Why? And that's where Martha's at in, in her anger, in her aggressiveness with God, which is okay. And then Jesus goes in this dialogue. He says, I t uh, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She understood the Jewish belief of resurrection on the last day. That's like a Jewish belief, right? Um, there was two types of Jews. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that, hey, we were, Sadducees did not. That's when you see those two groups attacking Jesus. Uh, they both had different, uh, differing views. Jesus was on the, on the Pharisaical side. He believed, and Martha believed, there would be a resurrection. But then Jesus changes the script. And I want you to watch this, as this is very important about Advent. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will, uh, uh, will live even after dying. And then he says, everyone who lives in me. So anyone who believes in me, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Now, now realize what has happened here. Now, you know Lazarus is going to get raised from the dead. 
Jesus rising Lazarus from the dead was him showing that he was actually the resurrection. It was symbolic for us to understand that Jesus had power over the very thing that scared humanity, which was death. So he's showing, I have power over that. I am God in the flesh. I am the resurrection of life. We know the end of that story. But what we fail to realize here is, is that grief is happening in this household. As we just looked at, Martha was angry with Jesus. You could have, you would have, you should have, you didn't. And why didn't you? And I'm upset with you. Yes, I believe in all the theological stuff. I know, I know, I know. And some of you are in that same place. But why? She was aggressive in her grief. And sometimes it's okay to be aggressive. Her, her sister Mary was apathetic in her grief. So Mary stayed in the house and wouldn't come out. Now, it was, it was custom and tradition for, like, someone who was grieving to actually have to be consoled by people. And they would just lay there in a chair like, I can't move. I'm grieving. But, but, but what they were doing was, and this is all symbolic for their culture, they were showing. I mean, it's like, imagine if there's kind of like just, just like this the whole time, just dramatic, you know. Ah. And that's what they were doing. That's what she was doing. She was showing that her soul was rendered inactive because of the grief. That's how her soul felt. And so Mary is apathetic. She's paralyzed by her grief. And sometimes that happens to us, and that's okay. And it says later that Jesus, when he went to the tomb of Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. That's the shortest scripture in all the Bible. And if you ever ask your child to memorize some scripture, they're going to that one first, just FYI. But it's one of the most misunderstood, mysterious, and often confused verses in the Bible. Scholars debate on what this really means when it says Jesus wept. Like when you look at the Greek and you break that down, you know, when it says Jesus wept, that word wept, he, it literally means he did weep. He was weeping. Now, first of all, we do know this. He was 100% God, 100% man. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hangry. <laughs> and he wept. Lazarus was a dear friend. But Jesus was analytical in his grief. That word weep there is much deeper than just like crying a little bit. It says he was deeply disturbed in his spirit. Meaning that Jesus is actually firsthand experiencing loss. If you say, well, yeah, Jesus, you don't know how I feel. He's like, no, 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 no. I do know how you feel. If you say, God, you don't know how I feel. No, no, God's like, no, they crucified my son. Jesus was experiencing what sin had, has actually done to humanity. We were never meant to die in the Garden of Eden. We were meant to live forever. And then sin comes in and cuts that short. And then Jesus is deeply disturbed and deeply troubled because of what sin has done to the world. I also believe at that point he realized the power of his mission, not just to get us into heaven, but what that means for us to be able to understand good grief. As we look at grief in this passage, and some of us are going to experience grief, whether you're watching online today or you're here physically, you're going to experience grief over this season. I believe Advent can help us have good grief. And what Jesus was trying to share with Martha, I want to share with you today, and it's this here, that Advent should give you a different angle on the afterlife. Advent, the coming of Christ, should give you a different angle on the afterlife. Jesus was trying to show Martha a perspective that she just didn't, didn't understand. She's like, oh, yeah, I know all that theology. Said, no, 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 you don't get it, Martha. I am the resurrection. I, you, 
those who believe in me will never die. And she could not fathom die. Well, my brother just died. I'm not sure what you mean. Yes, Lord, I knew the Messiah, and I, I still believe that. He tried to give her a different angle. And what I want to do this morning is to give you a different angle on the afterlife. Advent is not just about a baby in a manger. But Advent, the coming of Jesus, has far greater implications than that. And it should help us shape our grief and shape our views in a way that is beautiful, that even when you're grieving, you'll have a different angle on the afterlife and how Jesus' coming changed that. Now, Barnett did some research. Some of it's a little scary. And, and the research was this. It says that people who are 50 and older have a very orthodox view of heaven and hell and those things. But as they did this research, the younger that people got, the further away from Scripture they got about the afterlife. Matter of fact, the younger they got, the more it was just New Age hodgepodge. It was not Christian or scriptural or biblical at all. And to be a Christ follower means that we filter everything through Scripture, that we believe about death, hell, and the grave. We believe the same things that Jesus believed and that Paul taught and all the writers taught us. But the longer they went down, the further away from them they got. And that's my fear. And in my pastoral experience, here's what I've realized. Crisis, death, and tragedy will reveal what you really believe about death. Like, like some of the things that I hear that I just want to share with you that's not biblical, that can actually you know, maybe even hurt us a little bit. The first thing is this, is that, well, I guess, uh, I guess mama's an angel now in heaven. Number one, we don't become angels when we die. Angels are just a separate group. God created them. They mar That's why the, the advent, when you look at like the, the Christmas story, the nativity story, it's like the angels are marveling and they're saying like glory to God because they can't have salvation. They, don't, they can't fathom that. You don't become an angel. You don't like transition into angel. And, and we say, well, I guess daddy's my guardian angel now with his 12 gauge right beside him. He'll stop anybody that comes at me, right? Now, I know it makes us feel good, but we don't become guardian angels. As a matter of fact, you would be hard-pressed in Scripture to actually find a Scripture that tells you that you have a guardian angel, right? But that's some of the things that we do. When crisis and tragedy and grief happen, sometimes we begin just to reveal what's really inside of us. One of the scariest things, though, and I want to kind of spend some time on this this morning, is that when that happens, we then begin to reveal what we really believe about Jesus, and about salvation. For instance, if someone didn't know if their loved one was saved or knew Jesus, they'll say, oh, well, you know, but he was a really good person. Oh, he did a lot of good things. He's got to be in heaven. And we begin to twist and change because of what grief does to us. I, and I say that out of empathy and respect because my dad, I don't know if my dad is in heaven. I had to preach part of his funeral I did not say, well, my daddy's in heaven now. Because, friends, can I just be honest with you? I don't know. My uncle saw him getting wheeled into ICU. My dad had oxygen on. And my uncle, who's a believer, said, Danny, who's my, was my dad's name, do you remember when we were younger in church, the sinner's prayer? My uncle shared that prayer with him and said, do you believe? And my dad just shook his head. I don't know. Maybe he did repent and turn to Jesus in that moment. I have no clue. 
but I would be dishonoring to Jesus, and I would be offensive to Jesus if I said, well, he was a good guy, and I'm sure he got in somehow. Because Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. To anyone who believes in me, anyone, anyone who lives, that means that you, you begin to follow and serve Jesus. But what happens is we begin to twist our views on the afterlife according to the grief that we feel. And here's what happens. Here's the scariest part of that. Because when we do that, we're going to miss out on something that's super important. If we don't understand this, we're going to miss out on the gift. What is the gift? On the gift. Like Christmas is all about gifts, right? Like we see gifts everywhere. But there's the gift. There's the gift that God gave us that makes Advent powerful. Matter of fact, I tell my son this. Like I said, uh, son, I said, Dawson, do you know why we give gifts to each other? And he's like, because it's Christmas. Yes, that's circular logic and reasoning, but let me, let me unpack this way. Do you know why we give gifts to each other? And he says, no. I says, because God packaged a gift and gave a gift to us. He gave us the greatest gift ever. Vertically, the Father gave us a gift. So now the reason that we exchange gifts to each other in these and we, we, we send each other is because of the great gift of God to us. And what is that gift? And Paul outlines that gift here in Romans 5, 16. He says, as a result, as the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. You have the gift, you have the sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our what? Being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death, through this one man, Jesus Christ. God gave us Jesus as a gift. Why? So we could have righteousness with him, as we talked about last week. And he says, then you'll have victory over sin and death. Sin is what sabotages our life, as I said a few weeks ago. And death is what scares almost everyone. And if you're a believer, Jesus triumphed over both. That's what he was telling Martha. That's what he showed Martha and Mary and the disciples. And John wanted it written down so you would know what happened with Lazarus. And I want it to encourage you today. Matter of fact, if you're taking your notes, write, write this down. Let Advent remind you of God's amazing gift. I want to bring you back into center today. Let Advent, that's Christmas, let Advent remind you of God's gracious gift. His amazing gift to us. So I believe so many times we're just focused on the material, the surface level. We're all above that line. But rarely do we have meaning in Christmas. And I, I, I just want to mess Christmas up for you. I believe every time you tear open a gift, every time you receive a gift, mentally you should be thinking, man, this is amazing because this is what God did for us in Jesus. You don't have to pay anything for the gifts that your friends give you, your loved ones give you, do you? It's given to you. All you have to do is receive it and open it. And I believe during Advent, we have to be focused on that gift to say, God, thank you for this amazing gift that you've given us. As a matter of fact, the gift of eternal life should create good grief that the world can't understand. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say it this way to you. God's great gift should create good grief. Good grief. So, 
as you're going through this season and you're like reminiscing about the empty chair and your loved ones that are gone, they're not with you anymore, Advent should change the way we view it forever. When you see the empty chair, there's two perspectives you can have. And I'm going to show you those perspectives today. And I want us to have a gospel perspective of what, what it means now since Jesus has come. And it changes everything. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote this in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve, watch this, like people who have no hope. Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica, and here's why. Those two books that he writes, those letters he writes to them, they were, they're talked more with like this idea of rapture or this idea of the second coming more than any other book. And here's why. In Thessalonica, it was a very pagan society. And when you walked into Thessalonica over the city, inscription says, after death, there is nothing. That's inscribed. So could you imagine that as a kid, you're walking in the city? Like, we have Virginia is for lovers. <laughs> I, you, you know, our Dawson's going to grow up, you know, kind of like, that's great. Yeah, man, like, Virginia's for lovers. And then they get to walk in after death, there's nothing. And some of the believers there actually believed and didn't understand that you, that, that you would die, like, like your body would, would physically die. They were just confounded, and some of them were absolutely had fallen apart. Fallen apart, couldn't operate, because they were grieving like the world grieves. And Paul says, oh, oh, oh. he says, no, 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 no. We don't grieve like the world grieves who has no hope. John Wesley said that. He said we should, we should never grieve like the world grieves. And Paul instills that in them because he wants them to realize this great gift changes everything about grief. It should create good grief in us. But my fear is that many of us have not, haven't let that come down to our heart, that during this season of the empty chair, we will not let good grief begin to touch our hearts, to understand what the gift of eternal life really is. So how do you have good grief and gospel grief? And, and if, you've, if you've lost someone, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you if you're new with us today. Some of you know this, some of you don't. But I've lost my mom and my dad. Each time we launched a campus, I lost, I lost them. I haven't launched a third one yet. <laughs> I told my family member, hey, I'm not lying. If I launch a third one, when are y'all going next? I'm joking, guys. You can, I'm, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> but I, I go through that each year. I go through that each season. And this is what I have had to do as I filter my grief through the gospel as a believer and a follower of Jesus. Number one is this. I want you to, to write this down. How do we do it? It's number one, celebrate what they've created. Just celebrate what they've when you, I had a friend, and they lost their two-year-old about eight months ago, tragically. Just, just died for no reason. Nobody, nobody knows why. It's been that they're not followers of Jesus and uh, they're dear friends. It's kind of the hardest thing that, you know, had to journey with someone through. And what the wife said recently was this. She said, yes, there's an elephant in the room, but we want you to talk about our son and the memories you have of him and what he created for you. I think the worst thing you could do during this season of the empty chair is just hide it. You need to talk about, that's part of grief. Talk about what they created for you. 
Like my dad, like what he did for me, what he created and instilled, what my mom instilled inside of me, and talk about that to, to people. Yeah, there are going to be tears, and sometimes the men get really awkward with it, don't want to cry or anything. There's no crying at Christmas. You know, like, it's joyful, joyful, we adore thee. But celebrate what they created. Take time to think about that, muse upon that. Because God gave you that person as a gift, and every person has an expiration date, right? They have a dash, and that was a gift for you. Talk about that around the table. Think about that as you look at the empty chair. I'm going to think about that with my mom and my dad. I'm going to think about the things they've created in me, and I'm going to talk to my son about it. He's never met them, but he'll get to live with their stories and the things that they did, the, the mean things that my dad did, the good things my dad did, the funny things he said, and some jokes I can't tell my son until he's much older that my dad would tell, right? <laughs> Celebrate what they created. The, 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 second, the second thing we have to do is this. Embrace the fact that a believer never tastes death. This is so important. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you know that your loved one did not die if they were a follower of Jesus? Didn't die. Their last breath, their next breath became their first breath in, in the presence of God. We don't die. We don't like going to a purgatory or, you know, we're kind of hanging out, waiting for the, the, you know, the scales to be weighed. We, we don't, we, there's no reincarnation. Thank the Lord for that. We don't get reincarnated if we've been good. You know, you're a bug if you're bad and a dog if you've been pretty good and, you know. <laughs> Horse, if you've been really good, you know, like, it's, that's not how it works. And I celebrate the fact that my mom, who I know is a believer, my grandmother, I knew, they never tasted death. The last breath here was the next breath in the presence of God, which leads us to our third and final point, which is this. Don't say, stop saying they are in a better place. That's, I'll be nice to you, come on. That's offensive. You're saying, why? I know. As I said last week, Jesus isn't a higher power. He's the highest power. And they are in the best place that anyone could ever be. Could you, can, can you imagine, the, like, think about the most fun you've ever had. Can you imagine the last time you laughed till you cried? Can you imagine the last time you were just filled with joy? Could you imagine that feeling beyond infinity, just like, oh, just complete euphoria and joy and happiness. Not a, I mean, could you imagine that? The moment as believers that we breathe that last breath, we're in the best place ever. In fact, you'd probably be hard-pressed to whatever come back to earth when you're in the presence of Jesus. That's where they're at right now. I have friends who don't know Jesus. And they ask questions, where are my loved ones at? Are they walking around wondering? Are they scared? Are they depressed? Are they lonely? As and and, and we, we take for granted what we believe as followers of Jesus, that they are in the best place ever. And they're not waiting on you. There's no time in eternity. God's eternal. He's not in time. Time was created for earth. One day you're going to show up, and it's going to be like they, you've been there the whole time with them in the greatest place ever. Guys, that's the hope of the gospel, and that should change our grief. 
One of the stories I share with families, and I want to just close this morning with this to help you understand the empty chair and what Christianity believes is this. There was a little boy and his dad who would go by every day to the harbor and they would watch this boat that had been just dismantled and destroyed over the years being restored. And every day after school, the little boy and his father would go and they would get ice cream and they would sit and, and they would look at what was being done on the boat and what things were being restored. And the little boy looked forward to it. And one year later, after every day doing it, the boat was finally at full restoration. And when they got there that afternoon, the boat was sailing off in the sea. And the little boy falls to his knees. He says, Daddy, Daddy, the boat's gone. The boat's leaving. He's just crying. He dropped his ice cream. He said, we'll never see it again. It's gone. His dad gets down on his knees with him. He says, no, 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 no. He says, but, but the boat's not gone. It's just out of our sight. We can't see it, but it's just as much a boat now as it was sitting here. And that's what it was meant to do forever. This was just temporary. Okay. Can I tell you about your loved one? And knowing Jesus, they're not gone. They're just out of your sight, and they're more alive ever than they ever have been now, right now in the presence of Jesus. That's what the gospel gives us. Amen? That's what the greatest gift gives us is that hope. And I want Christmas, I want Advent, that word Advent, to have meaning to give us a different angle on the afterlife. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray for every person in here that's going to experience the empty chair. And Lord, it's hard. The grief is difficult. But we thank you for the gift you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for eternal life, for everlasting life. We thank you for the fact that we'll never taste death. And that we get to live in your presence forever. Thank you, Father. Now I pray for all of those who experienced that chair this year that you would meet them in their grief. Jesus, you understand what it means to grieve. You wept. You were deeply troubled, deeply disturbed. And thank you that we have you, a high priest who can identify with our weaknesses. Meet us in that grief during this season. May it be a good gospel grief where your presence is evident. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. And guys, we're praying today in here, and even online, if you're watching online in this mode of prayer, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want everlasting life. You want that eternal life. You want to know where you're going to end up. And if that's you today, it's free. It's a free gift. God's trying to give you a free gift. All you have to do is receive it, and you receive it by making Jesus your Lord. So right where you're sitting, whether you're online, on your couch at home, or, or whether you're in here with us today, right where you're at, pray this prayer. Make this confession of faith with me. And you say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I admit I need the Savior. I make Jesus my Lord. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again on the third day. And I believe he will come again. Today, I'd repent and turn away from that old life. And I receive new life in you. Lord, thank you for saving me. And it's in Jesus' good name that I pray.
Amen. Amen.